This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Tom Switzer and this is Between the Lines. Well, some natural disasters, however devastating, remain just that, natural disasters. Others trigger changes that might have taken longer or never happened at all. Now, this month's earthquakes across Turkey and Syria, they could turn out to be among them. So says Mary Dejeski, writing in the UK Independent newspaper. Now, it's far too early to forecast the political consequences of the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, and this week we saw some aftershocks. But it's not too early for Mary to raise some flags, which is why we've invited her back to Between the Lines. Hello, Mary. Hello, good evening from London. Now, let's start by putting the earthquakes in the context of the region's recent political and cultural volatility. Well, this must be one of the most volatile regions of the world, um, which is why the last thing that it needed was to have an earthquake um, really tremble the whole of the region. Because what you've got here is you've got Turkey, you've got Syria, you've got the border with Iraq, you've got the residue of the civil war in Syria, and you've got an imminent election in Turkey. And all the ramifications that those countries have even further afield. Well, let's start with the the consequences for Syria. What does it mean for the Assad regime? Now, bear in mind, this father-son partnership has pretty much been in power for more than half a century. What does it mean for Syria and its regime? Well, the interesting thing here is that Syria might possibly be um, the one country or the one regime that might just benefit from the earthquake. Because you can imagine that um, Bashar al-Assad has been consolidating his power ever since the the, the, the the fall of the the end of the siege of Aleppo. Um, really, the Assad regime has been returning and returning and retrenching itself and gaining more territory. And you can envisage that a natural disaster and a natural disaster on this scale will have people looking to government in a way that they don't at other times. And so it would make sense, in a way, for President Assad to try to, um, if you like, extend um, assistance from the central government to parts of the country which are less under his rule. Um, And that applies particularly to the north and the northeast of Syria, which is the areas worst affected by the earthquake. Now, you can look at it the other way as well, and you can say, well, if help doesn't arrive, or if those particular areas um, feel very um, hostile to central government, they might actually refuse help. Um, or they might turn around and say, look, they're not helping us um, because we, we've we been opposing the government. But I think the situation is so desperate. When you, when you look at the pictures and you look at um, what people are saying there, that the tendency will be to look to the only authority which seems to have 
more power. And that is the central government in Damascus. Yes, you've touched on this in passing. So you're saying that this civil war in Syria, which erupted in 2011, right at the height of the Arab Spring, that remains largely unresolved. Now, that's intriguing because I think a lot of listeners tuning in would say it's come to an end since the death of the Islamic State jihadists. But you're saying this civil war remains unresolved and to the extent that it does, this earthquake, you're saying, could assist Assad in extending his authority across those afflicted areas, looking to Damascus for help. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think we've seen, in a way, the beginnings of this. But the interesting thing is, you know, as, uh, as I said, that the most affected areas of Syria by mm. the earthquake are in the north. And those are the very areas that are have been continuing to defy the authority of Assad. But the problem for them is that they're not united. They all look to different people. So you've got an area which is close to Turkey and looks to Turkey, and Turkey would rather like to sort of bring under its wing. Um, you've got an area which is dominated by the Kurds, the Turkish Kurds, the Iraqi Kurds, um, which is obviously very, very hostile to the, the area semi-controlled by Turkey. And then you've got the residue of the jihadists, including the residue of Islamic State. So you've got all mm. these different forces um, controlling different bits of territory in the area that has been worst affected by the earthquake. Okay, you're saying then that there's a chance here for Assad to extend his regime's authority in those areas that have been resisting Damascus's control. But if the central authorities prove unable or even unwilling to help in those areas, could that have the opposite effect? That is reverse Assad's recent gains. Absolutely. It could, but only up to a point, because I think his um, his retrenchment has actually been quite successful. And so you've got relatively small regions in, in the north that are out of his control. So he wouldn't actually be losing that much if he couldn't make gains there. Um, but I think what we've seen so far is a greater um, interest by the central government in Damascus in extending aid to those regions than we've seen by international aid organisations and foreign governments, which is sort of ironic in a way. But they, talking about foreign governments and international aid organisations, they encounter a problem because, of course, they have insisted right up till now that they will not help in any way that goes through the authority of the central government. Uh. They want to deliver aid directly um, because otherwise they see it as assisting um, Assad in his, in his efforts to take back those regions. And this comes at a time when Assad, I mean, it's been 12 years since the outbreak of the civil war, Mary. He's clearly wanting to gain a degree of international acceptance from his perspective, I suppose, the international aid aspect could help that, but you're saying it'll be more difficult. But before this natural disaster, there was a lot of talk about uh, a rapprochement between the Assad regime and Erdogan in Turkey uh, that, of course, would help Assad gain a degree of international acceptance. Where do things stand now? 
Well, as I understand it, really just before the earthquake, um, there'd been an agreement that the two leaders were going to meet. Um, and this was obviously seen as a big step, as you say, towards um, Assad's, um, as it were, path back to international recognition. And particularly mm. because, you know, relations between be, between Turkey and Erdogan and Assad and Syria have been very, very bad. Um, so the idea of a rapprochement was, um, you know, represented a degree of not just a return to acceptability for Assad, but also a degree of normalisation between Syria and Turkey, and a sort of return to how things had been almost before the civil war. So yeah, it was a very, very big deal. Um, it's not clear to me whether the whether the meeting has been postponed or whether it won't happen at all. But I rather think that both sides are so invested in it that it will happen. It probably just won't happen quite as soon as it would have done. Mary Dejeski is a former correspondent for The Guardian newspaper in both Washington and Moscow. Mary, let's turn to Turkey. It's been creeping toward illiberal democracy for several years now. Now, it's President Erdogan, whom we just mentioned, He's been in power for two decades, but he faces a tough election in May. What about the political consequences of the earthquake for Erdogan? Well, that is very, very interesting. I happened to be travelling when the earthquake happened and I had um, one of the television stations on my hotel television um, was Turkey's international um, news service. And they were covering um, Erdogan's very prompt, it has to be said, visit to the earthquake zone. And he looked absolutely devastated. He looked like a leader really no longer in charge. He looked 10 years older than he's often looked. And, wow. you know, this is somebody who, as you say, is um, is facing an election. There are going to be both parliamentary and presidential elections, which, in fact, Erdogan had brought forward by a month. I think the, the deadline was for them to happen in June. He's brought them, brought them forward to May. Um, that was before the earthquake. Now, the question is, is he going to stick with that timetable? Is he going to... Um, he declared a state of emergency within a few days of the earthquake. Um, could that be a pretext for delaying the election, putting it back to the original date, or um, postponing it further? Um, we don't know. But there's been a lot of criticism in Turkey about the um, earthquake aid effort. And of course, you know, criticism is, is, is it's not difficult because supplying aid to regions that are essentially cut off and the degree of devastation, you know, you can see um, the television pictures show how, how absolutely um, annihilated um, some towns and settlements have been, and people haven't. It's taken a very, very long time for rescuers to get to the rural areas. And how far that is the fault of central government, and how far any central government would have failed under these circumstances, is of course a question. But the blame game has already begun, and it's hard to see that this this has to handicap um, Erdogan as he faces yes. elections. And what about the Kurds here? You mentioned the Kurds earlier. I mean, the worst devastation I understand in the Turkish area has been the largely Kurdish, I suppose it's the southeast, 
Now, you've made it clear in your column in The Independent that Erdogan, you know, he's not been averse to using repression against the poor Kurds of Turkey uh, for political advantage. He's been pretty brutal here. But I suppose the question here is, could a new move, a new Erdogan Turkish move against Kurdish resistance, could that now be on the cards? Well, it could be on the cards, but I think there is a question of, you know, how how many resources Erdogan currently has at his disposal, whether he could actually launch something like that now, um, because um, sort of repressions against the press and the, that sort of thing are relatively easy to do. Um, but if you want to have, a, as it were, a real crackdown, you need the resources to do it with. And it seems to me, just looking at it, you know, now from the outside, um, that the the devastation from the earthquake is actually taking up huge amount of central government resources and time and attention. So, to the extent that Kurdish regions and the and local leaders are going to be resistant or going to try and exploit um, difficulties in getting aid to the region um, for political purposes you know I think we've still got to we, we, we've still got to watch that and see what happens meanwhile Erdogan has long seen himself as something of a regional arbiter and clearly he's been one of the few aspiring mediators in this standoff with uh, the, the Ukraine Russia war he wants to have the year of both sides periodically at least. And of course, this week marks the one year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What does all this mean for Erdogan's ambitions to be that regional arbiter? Well, that's another very, very interesting question because, of course, you know, he is so taken up, and you know, you can see that he is so preoccupied, um, not just by the physical damage of the uh, uh, of the earthquake in the southeast of Turkey, but also potentially by the by the political damage to his future leadership in Turkey. Um, so the question is whether even the amount of time and attention that he was able to devote to Russia and the Ukraine war before, um, whether he'll have that sort of um, continuing at his disposal or whether he or, or whether he'll be looking really to domestic priorities and that that will rule out to an extent um, his ambitions to be this sort of international mediating figure. Mind you, neither Moscow nor Kiev has shown much appetite for diplomacy, Mary. That is entirely true, but you never know when that might change because, mm. you know, we've seen all sorts of um, high-profile um, events and meetings connected with the with the anniversary of the Russian invasion. So we've seen President Biden in Kiev, you know, spectacular pictures of him meeting um, mm. Zelensky in one of the city's main cathedrals. Um, we've had um, British Prime Minister dashing to Kiev for the same sort of photo opportunities, and everybody is pledging that they're going to continue the support, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, as long as it but, takes. Well, as long as it takes, so they say. Um, but there's this, there's a lot of promises, and one of the things that Zelensky has made very clear while trying not to sound too ungrateful because he, he's been criticised in the past for not being grateful enough for the help that um, the West has been sending him. But there is always a question about 
know, there's been this question of leopard tanks, whether the Germans would send those, the British sending tanks. Um, Ukraine now wants fighter aircraft, um, and a lot of people are hanging fire about whether that's really a good idea. But there is always this delay between promises and delivering the equipment or the weapons. And in America in particular, you see the beginnings of a debate about how far it's really sensible to be helping to fuel this war, helping to continue it. Um, and there's the risk for Zelensky that um, that sort of sentiment may increase. Yes, I heard one Republican congresswoman complaining that Ukraine now has become the 51st state of the United States. But keeping with but keeping with Ukrainian aid, and you mentioned Zelensky not being grateful enough for it or being seen not to be grateful enough, this raises a very important question, and it's a good way to conclude this, this um, interview, Mary. The consequences for Ukrainian aid, that is the consequences of this earthquake, because we've got all this Western aid going to Kyiv to fight Russia, but now there's obviously a huge demand for aid and humanitarian relief across both Turkey and Syria. So what are the consequences here for Ukrainian aid? Well, I think, you know, again, this is a very, very interesting factor that we'll see play out in the next few weeks. Um, the first one is obviously competition for um, humanitarian aid. You know, we're not talking about competition for military aid, and that's primarily what um, Zelensky is interested in. But the country as a whole has been receiving quite a lot of humanitarian aid, and now suddenly um, there is a rival for those resources. Um, but the other thing I think in a way could be more damaging, which is that um, Ukraine has benefited hugely from an enormous amount of Western attention. And it's been very good at commanding that attention. Its PR operation has been absolutely state-of-the-art. It'll be studied for years to come in terms of effective war propaganda of projecting your cause abroad. But the earthquake has had the effect of um, blotting out some of that from the Western international media. Now, at the moment, um, Ukraine is back in the headlines because of the anniversary. But the extent to which the earthquake will be competing for media attention, I think, um, is possibly an even bigger risk to Ukraine and its cause in the West um, than the actual material issue of humanitarian aid. So in a nutshell, uh, Russia could gain and Ukraine could lose if international attention shifts elsewhere. You mentioned Erdogan. He could be weakened with implications for Turkey's regional status and Assad could consolidate his hold on Syria sooner than expected. These are the geopolitical consequences of the earthquakes. Mary, great to have you back on Between the Lines. Well, thank you very much. That's Mary Dujeski, a columnist with the UK Independent Newspaper. Still to come on Between the Lines, distinguished diplomatic historian James Mann on Jimmy Carter's foreign policy legacy and the Danish environmentalist Bjorn Lomborg. Well, in 2015, at the UN Paris Climate Summit, 
World leaders set out to address major problems facing humanity. They establish what's called sustainable development goals. And every admirable pursuit imaginable. Think about it. Eradicating poverty and disease, stopping war and climate change, protecting biodiversity and improving education. The SDGs, as they're called, they comprise 17 goals and 169 targets, all that to be achieved by 2030. However, the world is failing badly to deliver on most of these goals by that 2030 deadline. Now, my next guest says we're spending lots of resources on things that could do little or no good. Bjorn Lomborg is president of the Copenhagen Consensus and a visiting fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. His most recent book is called False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor and Fails to Fix the Planet. Bjorn, welcome back to the ABC. Thank you very much, Tom. Now, before we address these uh, sustainable development goals, let's just start with climate. Now, according to the IPCC, the UN climate body, since the end of the pre-industrial period, so we're talking about 1880 here, the climate temperature has risen by a mean of about one degree Celsius, and it's human-induced. Your response? Uh, fundamentally, yes and yes. So, uh, you know, the UN climate panel, uh, it's one of the best things that we have to tell us what's up and down with global warming. Uh, we have seen a significant increase in temperatures, and most of that is probably because of man. Now, if the IPCC and Bjorn, if you're right on the warming issue, what's wrong then with the widely held policy prescription that the world should just mitigate against the effects of climate change? Well, look, Tom, the, the whole point about climate change is it is a real issue. It's caused by man. But that doesn't mean that's how we're going to fix it. We need to ask a very different kind of question, because the first part you just uh, talked about is a natural science question. That's really a question, you know, is a, a CO2, a, a greenhouse heat trapping gas? And it is. Have we been emitting it? Yes. And from fossil fuels. The other part, what should we do about it, is a social science question. Remember, Obviously, all other things equal, we would like to cut temperature, but that also have costs. So it's not just that climate impacts are costly, it's also that climate policy is costly. And so if we want to do smart and effective policy, we actually have to remember we have to pay both of those costs. Now, I'm not saying anything new, and I'm certainly not saying thing, anything amazing here, because this was what William Nordhaus, the only climate economist to ever win the Nobel Prize back in 2018, that was what he won the Nobel Prize for. He basically points out, and a lot of other people have done this, that you need to say what's the best or the most optimal way to fix climate, given that they're both climate cost and climate policy cost. It turns out we should cut some, but not a lot. And that's very different from what most people say. Classic cost-benefit analysis, but she, your exactly. critics would say yeah. that natural disasters, this is what your critics would say, they'd say floods, droughts, storms, wildfires, all that, they're the result yeah. of climate change, which justifies the radical policies to combat climate change. So, so there's no doubt that a lot of what we hear in the conversation around climate change is that this is almost the end of the world. Remember, a lot of people actually believe this is or could be the end for humankind. 
the UN climate panel, the IPCC, as you started off with, say no such thing. Climate change is a problem, not the end of the world. So when a lot of people tell you there are more and more catastrophes and they're more and more damaging, actually, if you look at the data, uh, if you look at the cost impacts, it turns out that in percent of GDP, the costs have been trending slightly downwards, not up uh, since 1990, where we have good global data. But perhaps more importantly, if you look at the number of people that die from climate-related disasters, which is one of the very cleanest uh, uh, impacts you could imagine and define, so people who die from floods, drought, storms, wildfires, and extreme temperatures, we have that well mapped out for at least 100 years. And the answer is, despite the fact that population has quadrupled over the last century, the impacts, the number of people dying have not gone up. It's actually gone down dramatically in the 1920s on average, about half a million people died every year. Last year, in 2022, which was one of those big years that we talk about, 11,000 people died. So a reduction of more than 98%. That's amazing. And of course, the main reason is that's because we're richer and we're more resilient. What about the heat waves, though? Because we often hear, I mean, they make headlines across across the globe, but that's not the full story, though. No. So again, as temperatures rise, we're likely to see more heat waves. And hence, unless we take uh, preventative measures, we're also likely to see more people dying from heat. That's true. And that is a problem. But most people just don't have any sense of the proportion of the fact that vastly more people die from cold. And as temperatures rise, we're going to see fewer cold waves and hence fewer people dying from cold. This is uh, a new Lancet study, the biggest one that has been done, trying to cover the entire globe in 2021, estimating how many people die. The answer is about half a million from heat and about four and a half million. So nine times more die from cold. And over the last 20 years, as temperatures have risen, what we would expect from global warming, heat wave deaths have increased about 166,000, but cold wave deaths have decreased 283,000 people. So overall, we've actually seen 166,000 fewer people die because of rising temperatures. We just need to hear all these sides of the story. Mm. We can't just hear the scary part and make good decisions if we're only told one side of the story. Okay, but what about with respect to climate mitigation? Because the prevailing wisdom is that the world is bound to develop, you know, these green technologies, which means cheaper energy than fossil fuels. And moreover, this energy transition will become so fast that even the high emitting nations, the industrializing uh, developing nations, you know, the Indias, the Chinas, the non-OECD, they'll fully embrace the decarbonisation agenda because of these green technologies. It, it, you're, you're absolutely right. This is one part of the story. Uh, remember, there's another and almost entirely conflicting story, which is we're not going to make it. We have to spend huge amounts of money in order to achieve this. The, these are totally in conflict with each other, because obviously if the first story, the one that you just told, was true. We're done. We will fix climate change and everyone will just switch to renewables and you don't have to pressure anyone. But of course, that's not actually what happens. Right now, the world gets about 80% of its energy from fossil fuels. And it's very likely, even by mid-century, we will still get somewhere between uh, 55 and 65% of our energy from fossil fuels. 
fundamentally because people say, oh, solar is incredibly cheap. Sure, it's incredibly cheap when the sun is shining. When the sun is not shining, it's actually infinitely costly. And that's, of course, why you really do need to recognize this is not a question about just having power when the sun is out. This is about having affordable and reliable power 24-7. That turns out to be much, much harder. And of course, that's why most nations are actually not transforming or not switching. And you have to subsidize a lot. You have to pay a lot. And even then, you only cut a little bit of your fossil fuel use. Okay, but are you downplaying the great prospects of technological innovation? When I talk to people in the private equity markets, the capital markets, they're very bullish about the energy transition. Now, in December, Bjorn, scientists achieved the world's first nuclear fusion ignition. That generates a net energy gain. Now, the people I talk to in the in the money markets, they're, they're saying this is an exciting breakthrough towards a fossil fuel-free world. Bjorn Lomborg. And that would be wonderful. Look, I, I'm all for innovation. One of the things that we did, uh, I worked with uh, about 50 of the world's best climate economists uh, and uh, uh, and uh, three Nobel laureates, where we try to look at what is the smartest way you fix climate change. And absolutely, that is innovation. And this is one of those instances. Uh, look, if we could innovate the price of green energy down below fossil fuels, everyone would switch. It wouldn't just be well-meaning Australians and other Westerners, but it would also be the Chinese, the Indians, the Africans. Everyone would switch. But we're not there yet. I get that a lot of money people are very excited, but mostly they're very excited because we give them the opportunity to sell us a lot of fairly expensive solar, which they buy cheaply. And then we make up uh, mostly by paying even more expensive uh, costs for having backup typically from gas uh, via power plants. And even then, we only cut a little bit of CO2, which is why you know the uh, McKinsey's of the world, for instance, estimate that if we're actually going to go net zero, this is not going to be cheap. This is going to cost the world about $5.3 trillion, and that's mm. American dollars, every year for the rest of this first half of the century. So this is going to be incredibly expensive. And that's why we're you know, a lot of people are telling us we're almost there, but the reality is, no, we're not. We need a lot more innovation if that's actually going to happen. My guest is Bjorn Lomborg, president of the Copenhagen Consensus in Denmark. His most prominent books include The Skeptical Environmentalist, Measuring the Real State of the World. That was published in 2001. And I'm sure somewhere in cyberspace, there are many interviews, Bjorn, between <laughs> you and Tony Jones from the ABC on Late Line. That was always great fun in the 20s, 2000s and the 2010s. Now, Bjorn, let's now turn to the so-called Sustainable Development Goals. Now, you say we're failing badly to meet the targets. Uh, this was set at Paris in 2015. We're now at the halfway point. Why are we unlikely to meet the deadline in 2030? Because we have this tendency globally and for almost all treaties to make grand promises we can't keep. Remember, this is all advantageous for politicians. They get to say, oh, I'm going to fix everything. And we applaud them. And then, of course, the deadline only arrives 15 years later when they'll probably not be in power and somebody else actually have to deal with it or pay or just 
fail. Uh, and so we have promised lots of stuff in the climate area, but we're promising lots of stuff across all the different in international areas. So as you mentioned, we're promising to end war, not going very well. Uh, we're promising to feed everyone, not going very well. We're promising to get people out of poverty. Sure, it's going better, but not nearly as fast as it should, and on and on. So we're making all these promises. The point that I try to make, and I'm really working in a, in a think tank, the Copenhagen Consensus, that works with lots and lots of economists, we try to say, look, if you can't do everything, why don't you do the smartest stuff first? Why don't you focus on the places where for little money, you could do an incredible amount of impact for the world? So we're basically trying to say, Look, we're failing on the sustainable development goals. We're failing on most of our promises. A lot of the things that we're trying to do are actually spending lots of money, achieving very little. We don't need to fix stuff that works. We Why don't we fix the stuff that's really easy to fix first? The extraordinary benefit-cost ratios. Uh, tell us about that with respect to education. Yes. So, for instance, for education, one of the big problems in the world is almost half a million, sorry, half a billion kids are in school, mostly in low and low middle income countries, where they are learning very little. So over the last 20 or 50 years, maybe even, we've tried to get kids into school. We're almost succeeded. Most kids are in school today, but they learn very, very little. Uh, so let me give you one example of uh, a reading test that kids get. Uh, they're told BJ has a red hat, a blue shirt, and yellow socks. What color is the hat? If kids are shown this uh, and they're 10 years old, about 80% in the developing world will not be able to answer this question. And this tells you how badly we're educating our kids. Why? Because, you know, imagine if you're in an average sort of third world uh, country, you have 60 kids in the class, and they're from widely different uh, abilities. Some of them are barely hanging on. Some of them are incredibly bored. What are you going to do as a teacher? Well, you teach to some in the middle, and then you hope that that will get through to at least some of the kids. But the reality is we would do so much better if you could teach each kid according to his or her level. So that's yeah. what technology promises to do. And we have lots and lots of studies that show you can actually do this. Imagine one hour a day, you sit the kids down with a tablet, and that tablet knows how good you are. It very quickly figures that out. And then it teaches you at exactly your level. That means one hour a day, you will learn so much more than the rest of the day and so much more than the rest of the school year. It actually turns out, and this cost about $29 per kid. That's yeah, right. part of it is the tablet. Part of it is, you know, you need a place where you can store it and lock it up at night. And you need some solar panels that can recharge them, all that kind of stuff. And, but if if we look at all of that for $29, you can get these kids for every year they go to school to learn three times as much. So as if they had gone to school for three years. That's an amazing achievement because what happens is when you allow them to learn more, they become smarter when they go out and become adults. They will be more productive. They will mm. make their countries richer. We estimate that for every dollar you spend, you will actually achieve benefits in the order of $65. This is an amazing investment. And again, our point is not to say this is the only thing we should do, 
But we should be focusing on these very specific, very simple places where a little money could do an amazing amount of good. Why aren't we doing that? Well, because we promise everything and we you know, spread so thinly yes. across all these areas. We're simply saying, let's spend it where it does a lot of good first. Yes, that's right. So your line is that we're spending lots of resources on things that do little or no good. We can do better. What about, you're talking about children, increasing vaccination of children in the low and lower middle income world? Exactly. Look, we have actually gotten a lot of kids vaccinated. Vaccines are one of the most amazing things in the world. You can give a kid a little you know, a jab in the arm and you can basically avoid them from dying from these diseases that killed everyone. Uh, uh, no, not everyone, but a lot of people uh, back in times <laughs> of old. And we have fixed a lot of this, but there's still a lot more room to uh, give even more jabs, both uh, against rotaviruses, which is one of the best way or one of the worst ways, actually, uh, to get diarrhea and sometimes die. Uh, there are lots of other uh, things that you can in- invest in. These are all the numbers from the Gavi, so the International uh, Organization that gets vaccines out to small kids. We estimate that if we spent about seven point eight billion dollars over the next eight years. So this is not a trivial amount of money, but still, you know, in the big scheme of things, this is very, very little money. So about a billion dollars a year, we could save 4.2 million extra kids. For every dollar spent, you do $101 of social benefits. That's just mind-blowingly good. And again, and again, this is just one of those 12 things that we find and identify, I'm just writing a book about it right now, and we're also publishing this in papers around the world, to basically get Mm. people back to say, let's not promise everything and deliver on nothing. Let's promise very specific things where for very little money, we could actually make the world a much better place. Well, you said you've worked with lots of the world's top economists to identify the most effective ways to help the world. And you just said those papers will be published. It's by the Journal of Benefit Cost Analysis. And you're writing a new book on this coming out in a few months. So we'll, um, to be continued, Bjorn, great to have you back on ABC. Let's do that, Tom. That was Bjorn Lomborg, president of the Copenhagen Consensus and a visiting fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. His most recent book is called False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor and Fails to Fix the Planet. Up next, historian James Mann looks back on the foreign policy legacy of President Jimmy Carter. We'll go back to the late 1970s and early 1980s. Democrat Jimmy Carter was in the White House and his presidency was defined by high inflation, high interest rates, high unemployment and what came to be known as a national malaise. Meanwhile, the Soviet Union, bristling with genuine imperial designs, they had recently invaded Afghanistan, installing a puppet regime. Iran, well, it had ousted a pro-Western leader in favour of a fervently anti-American cleric. And then there was a US hostage crisis. As a consequence, Carter's approval rating sank to Nixonian levels at the depths of the Watergate scandal. And on election day in 1980, he was routed by the former B-grade movie actor and California governor, Ronald Reagan. 12 years of conservative governance followed. 
Yet in retirement, Carter's reputation soared. He was widely praised for his energetic Nobel Prize winning efforts to help the downtrodden and to search for peace in the darkest corners of the planet. James Mann is one of America's leading historians of modern presidential foreign policy. He's author in residence at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington. Jim, welcome back to Between the Lines. Good to be with you, Tom. Now, Jimmy Carter has uh, often been described as as an accidental president. He was swept narrowly into office by America's revulsion at the Watergate trauma, and then he left in despair after only one term in power. Is that assessment fair? He was accidental, I would say, only in a very limited sense. He was accidental because he won the Democratic nomination as a centrist when a whole bunch of liberals were running, dividing the vote, and therefore he got through. There are senses in which he wasn't accidental. He was the natural reaction to Watergate. He was a governor at a time when anti-Washington sentiment was rising. He was actually the first of a string of governors. In fact, if you look at American presidents, starting with Jimmy Carter, there's almost no one, with the exception of four years of uh, George H.W. Bush, there's really no one from Washington. Barack Obama was a senator for two years. But really, Reagan, Clinton, George W. Bush, they're all governors running against Washington. So I don't think he was accidental in that sense. Okay, now you say Carter was a natural reaction to Watergate and the uh, Washington establishment. Is it fair to say he also distinguished his foreign policy from the, what was called the, I think he called this himself, the amoral realpolitik of the Nixon-Ford era? So this was from 1969 to 1977. So was Carter's human rights activism uh, a, a welcome corrective to Kissingerian realism? I would say it was. I would, I would say that the, his human rights policy actually had some precedence in the, in the late Nixon year. Actually, it was under, under Gerald Ford. There are two strong uh, drivers for the human rights policy. One was the Helsinki Accords uh, negotiated by Ford, which gave international uh, recognition to human rights policies. And the second was the Democratic Congress under a a guy named Donald Fraser had been pushing for a human rights policy. So Carter embodied the the reaction to Henry Kissinger. Okay. Now, Carter's human rights agenda, his critics said it led to all sorts of unintended consequences, such as putting pressure on the Shah of Iran, a longtime U.S. ally in the Persian Gulf. Fair criticism? No, I don't, th- I don't think that's fair. I don't think that Carter's human rights policies led to the downfall of the Shah. It, it is true that when he took office, he suggested or encouraged the Shah to liberalize uh, as he did to other uh, leaders in dictatorial countries. But really what happened on the streets, there was a popular uprising against the Shah. At times, the United States urged the Shah to crack down. The Shah was famously indecisive. So I think the movement against the Shah and the Shah's own indecisiveness led to his downfall. And this all led to Islamic revolutionaries overrunning the American embassy in Tehran. That began a 440-day crisis. 52 American hostages were involved. Tell us about that. Right. After the Shah left the country and went into exile, he became sick. 
he, he had a miserable final couple of years in exile. He shuttled. He went to Egypt. Uh, he needed medical treatment. And uh, at first, Carter resisted and didn't want, didn't want to let him into the United States for medical treatment. And the Shah had very powerful friends, namely Henry Kissinger and David Rockefeller, the banker, um, who pushed over and over again in Washington. And finally, Carter allowed the Shah to come into the United States for medical treatment. And in Tehran or in Iran, there were huge protests then against the United States for having allowed the Shah into the country. Uh, and these culminated late that year in uh, Iranian protesters storming, taking over the American embassy and taking these hostages. What happened after that, there, there are two things that happened. First, Inside the United States, this became a crushing issue for Carter. Television shows are saying, you know, it's day number four, you know, day, day number seven, day number 70. Day after day, how do you get the hostages out? And the second thing that happened was then Carter finally um, decided to launch a military operation to get the hostages out. And that was a, mm. a, a complete disaster. Several of the helicopters went down in the deserts in Iran. One broke down of its own accord. It was a failure. In fact, such a failure that that, that was what led to the American uh, military creating the special operations forces that we know of today. Carter never did get the hostages out. Iran then held back and released the hostages immediately after Ronald Reagan took office. And we've been living with the consequences since because that regime that was installed after the downfall of the Shah, a Shia cleric regime, deeply anti-American, that's still in place. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that, that was one of the tremendous failures of American policy. The question here is to what extent Carter gets the blame for it, but certainly it was a miserable failure to try to rescue them and he never recovered. I think that's a fair assessment, isn't it? Coming after... Only a few years after the American withdrawal from Vietnam, it was a tremendous symbol of American decline. It was taken as a symbol of decline, uh, weakness, and inability of the American military. And that's not to mention the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Now, at the time, Carter's chief foreign policy goal, he wanted to get the Senate to approve what was called the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty 2. He'd signed that with Brezhnev, the Soviet dictator, of course, SALT, uh, it's interesting to note that this week Putin has um, uh, pulled out of the various uh, successes to that SALT treaty. But right. when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, what happened next? Well, it's like Jimmy Carter almost had a wake-up moment, finally, that the world was not all uh, benign and liberal democracies and so on. Carter reacted with policies so tough that in the end the Soviets later said they preferred Ronald Reagan. Uh, uh, first, he, he withdrew the ambassador. He cut off technology sales to Soviet Union, reminiscent of the United States and China today. He pulled out. The Americans did not go to the Olympics in Moscow in... Mm -hmm. in uh, 1980. Uh, right, in 1980. And it was almost as, he, as if he had a conversion experience. Okay, so the Soviet invasion of, Af of Afghanistan, the, the Iranian hostage crisis, these are all humiliations for Carter, but it's not all humiliation for Carter foreign policy. There was, of course, the Camp David Accords. Tell us about their significance. Uh, they were and last today as uh, the single 
example of working of of uh, Israel uh, working out uh, an agreement that would last a peace agreement. This is um, followed many years later by the Abraham Accords, but the idea of working out some kind of arrangement predated Carter, and he managed to do this. Originally, he brought the Egyptian president Anwar Sadat and the Israeli uh, leader Menachem Begin to Camp David. They negotiated. Originally, the, the goal and the American goal was to get Israel to withdraw some of its forces from the Golan Heights and elsewhere. They never got there. But they did work out a framework that lasted for a while between uh, Israel and its neighbors. And speci- more specifically, they negotiated a peace treaty between uh, Israel and Egypt, which was groundbreaking. Now, the unfortunate underside, after effect of that is as a result, probably as a result of that, Anwar Sadat was assassinated in Egypt three years later. That's right, indeed. So, so the upshot here is that it neutralized, these Camp David Accords neutralized the Egyptian military as an existential threat to Israel, and it's only a few years after the Yom Kippur War. What about China? I mean, a lot of people think it's Nixon who actually established formal diplomatic relations. Certainly Nixon's responsible for the great opening in 1971-72, but it was Carter who who actually established formal diplomatic relations between Washington and Beijing, correct? Correct. So Nixon uh, Nixon deserves uh, all the credit for the opening. And he told the Chinese that he would um, eventually establish diplomatic relations. Watergate hit. And he and, and Gerald Ford were too weak to establish diplomatic relations. So it was left to Carter. And Carter takes office with a kind of sequencing in which he needs Senate approval for several things. He was looking for the SALT Accords, the Panama Canal Treaty, and recognition of, of China. He delays... Uh, for two years, any action in dealing with China because he needs the support of Barry Goldwater uh, on the Panama Canal treaties and 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 other conservative. And, and Barry Goldwater was a very yeah exactly. I was going to say the 1964 yeah. presidential candidate LBJ line of the conservative movement. Go on. Yeah, uh, and so first he he sequences this. He does the Panama Canal treaties. He waits uh, two years and he moves ahead to negotiate with China over recognition. And there are a couple of serious issues there. The United States wanted to keep a consulate in Taiwan. The Chinese said no, and they and the United States retreated from keeping a consulate. There was an issue of whether the United States would sell arms to Taiwan. I know this sounds all amazing decades <laughs> later. Um, yes. But uh, the United States wanted to sell arms to Taiwan uh, Deng Xiaoping, who was the Chinese leader, said no way. The United States actually won on that on that one. Um, it preserved the right to sell arms to Taiwan. They again negotiated after Carter left office, but uh, Reagan held firm as well. So it's a long negotiation, and immediately after the midterm elections, Carter announces recognition um, of of China. There are all kinds of things that go along with it. That opened the way for military relationship, for an intelligence relationship. It opened the way for Chinese students to come to the United States. And it opened the way a year or so later for China to get most favored nation trade status. Until uh, during Carter's years, 
uh, and before him, the United States treated the Soviet Union and China on an equal footing on, on almost everything. And in 1980, uh, uh, Vice President Mondale said, we broke the link because they went ahead and gave China preferential status rather than the Soviet Union. And these successes with respect to China and the Camp David Accords, it, it certainly didn't stop his approval ratings from sinking dramatically. A lot of people may not know this, but Carter faced a serious primary challenge from, of all people, Senator Teddy Kennedy. That was right up to the Democratic Convention in mid-1980. Of course, so that hurt Carter, and then he, he lost a landslide election to Ronald Reagan. A successful post-presidency, which we will deal uh, with another time, but in conclusion, Jim, I thought I'd finish with this joke. One of my favourite Jimmy Carter jokes. I don't know if you know this one, mate, but um, this is Carter about his wife, Rosalind. I never won an argument with my wife. And the only time I thought I, I had won the argument, I quickly found out the argument wasn't over. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> and, and he, he was very popular, uh, but a lot of people respected him personally, but he, he just failed clearly as a president, which explains why he was smashed by Reagan. But um, there's, there's, no, there's, uh, there's nothing no... you can do about 20% interest rates. <laughs> it, was, yeah, it, wasn't, it was 18, right. I guess. Yeah. I think it was called the, the misery index. You'll that never... is the unemployment rate plus the inflation rate. It was about 20%, I think, Jim. Yeah. Dark days. Great to have you on the program, Jim. Thanks, Tom. That was James Mann. He's author of several prominent books, including The Rise of the Vulcans, The History of Bush's War Cabinet, and The Rebellion of Ronald Reagan, A History of the End of the Cold War. Well, that's it for Between the Lines. And if you'd like to listen to past programs, including our recent episodes to mark the anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine... Just go to the ABC Listen app and you can always search for the Between the Lines podcast. And in our next episode, what's behind China's falling birth rate and why is there a reluctance to have children? Could it be a form of protest? That's next time. I'm Tom Switzer. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.